The reading for the day comes from Luke 1, 26 through 55. When Elizabeth was six months pregnant, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a city in Galilee, to a virgin who was engaged to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David's house. The virgin's name was Mary. When the angel came to her, he said, Rejoice, favored one. The Lord is with you. She was confused by these words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. The angel said, Don't be afraid, Mary. God is honoring you. Look, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of David, his father. He will rule over Jacob's house forever, and there will be no end to his kingdom. Then Mary said to the angel, How will this happen since I haven't had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come over you, and the power of the Most High will be overshadowing you. Therefore, the one who is to be born will be holy. He will be, call, he will be called God's son. Look, even in her old age, your relative Elizabeth has conceived a son. This woman, who was labeled unable to conceive, is now six months pregnant. Nothing is impossible for God. Then Mary said, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be with me just as you have said. Then the angel left her. Mary got up and hurried to a city in the Judean highlands. She entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. With a loud voice, she blurted out, God has blessed you above all women, and he has blessed the child you carry. Why do I have this honor that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. Happy is she who believed that the Lord would fulfill the promises he made to her. Mary said, with all my heart, I glorify the Lord. In the depths of who I am, I rejoice in God, my Savior. He has looked with me with favor on the low status of his servant. Look, from now on, everyone will consider me highly favored because the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He shows mercy to everyone from one generation to the next who honors him as God. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations. He has pulled the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and set the rich away, sent the rich away empty-handed. He has come to the aid of his servant Israel, remembering his mercy, just as he promised to our ancestors to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants forever. Good morning, everybody. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. This morning, we are in our final Sunday of Advent. We've been moving through the stories of the incredible women in the lineage of Jesus, preparing the way for the birth and so as we get to Mary, naturally, we're going to be talking about sex and sexuality. 
I know this may seem a little bit out of left field, but it's actually quite consistent with uh, the fixations of the birth story. And I'd like to start by telling you about one of the worst babysitting experiences I have ever had. When I was like 13, I was babysitting for a church family. Now, I knew these family, this family, these kids, because we all grew up together. My dad was a pastor, so I was supposed to be the good pastor's kid watching over these good church kids. And naturally, because it was a wholesome Christian family, they were listening to the Grease soundtrack. This throwback, 50s, wholesome, good family fun. Until one of the 10-year-olds started singing, Look at me, I'm Sandra D, lousy with virginity. Won't go to bed till I'm legally wed. I can't, I'm Sandra D. And then that same 10-year-old asked me, What's virginity? I totally panicked. I respected them as fellow children and thought that this was media that their parents had picked out for them, and so I tried to explain until I realized that their parents hadn't actually taught them what sex was. So here I am, a 13-year-old babysitter, explaining the birds and the bees to a 10-year-old of my church. It didn't go well. In fact, it went so poorly that later, that same kid blackmailed me into giving her more ice cream because she said, if you don't, I'll tell my parents you told me about S-E-X. It was a real bummer. It was a real bummer. I should have just stuck with ask your parents. But the weird thing about this was that these kids had grown up in church. And honestly, way more than Greece or any pop culture, the church is obsessed with virginity. Certainly they had heard about the virgin birth by the time they had gotten to be 10 and asking these questions. The church is pretty obsessed with sex in general, actually. It's why the church is often so distracted by queer people. They can't stop thinking about our sex lives. And most of us have rich, full lives that may or may not include sex. But the church fetishizes the sexuality and sexual practices of nearly everyone. Queer people, trans people, and cis women in particular. And so as we proceed to Mary's contribution to the Christmas story, I would like to deconstruct the virgin birth. I think that Mary offers us a lot more than her virginity. And we're distracted by the true miracle of the birth of Jesus brought to us by Mary the Magnificent and the role that Mary plays in it when we fixate on whether she has or has not had sex. I know it's counterintuitive that I'm going to focus this sermon on the virgin birth because I think it's a distraction, but go with me. We'll see where the spirit leads us. Sometimes we have to move through our fixations before we can get over them. So I'm going to propose a couple of scenarios. Scenario one, Mary is not a virgin, just pregnant with Jesus. Maybe that's Joseph's baby, maybe it's not. Either way, not a virgin. Scenario number two, Mary is a virgin and it doesn't really matter. But first I want to make the case for why the Bible might have pushed a narrative of a virgin birth, whether or not it was true. As I mentioned, the church is obsessed with sex, terrified of it, in fact. And this goes all the way back to the writing of scripture. The scriptures are terrified of women's sexuality in particular and really concerned with lineage, with genealogy, always dictated by sperm. 
There's no way to guarantee that a child was truly a man's property or deserved his inheritance unless the woman who bore him, the child, always male in that case of inheritance, had been proven to only have had sex with that man. And in fact, all of the tropes of virginity in scripture are about property law. Any violation of sex within marriage is also about property and is punished accordingly. Women punished much more harshly than men unless men violated the property of another man. This is really troublesome, and I don't think that it's actually how God intended sexuality to play out in our culture. What does virginity even mean? It's a concept based on truly heteronormative ideas of sex. The hymen, for instance, is actually a myth. And it gets back to the chronic sin of the church in oversimplifying sexuality to a physical transaction rather than a spiritually intimate and deeply embodied connection between two people. And so in Mary's culture, it was really important to establish who dad was by ensuring that a woman had never had sex before with anyone else. But what if dad is God? There were certainly myths at the time about gods coming to earth to have sex with human beings, but they were pretty creepy and gross. Usually they were coercive, and there were a lot of awful power dynamics at play. And that's not really our God's jam. So it makes sense that it, we wouldn't replicate the mythology of, for instance, Greek culture when talking about the birth of Jesus and the uniting of divine and human. But there's another reason that the New Testament writers really had a stake in identifying Mary as a virgin. There's a passage in the book of Isaiah, and it's really beautiful, and it's talking about a coming prophet. In Isaiah, it says, Then Isaiah said, Listen, house of David. Isn't it enough for you to be tiresome for people that you are also tiresome before my God? Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. The young woman is pregnant and is about to give birth to a son, and she will name him Emmanuel. Emmanuel. That sounds really familiar, right? Emmanuel, God with us. God incarnate. Jesus, the Christ who has come. The New Testament writers understood this text to be prophetic, a foretelling of the future, the coming of Jesus, that the young woman would become pregnant and give birth to a son, and she will name him Emmanuel, Jesus. Except that the copy of the text that the New Testament writers had probably didn't say young woman. The original did, the Hebrew did, but they were working often from what's known as the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation. And in the Greek version, there's sort of a mistranslation here. They used the term Alma, which meant virgin. Now, Greek, in that context, it also means young woman, but young woman and virgin are interchangeable. Elsewhere in the text, in the Septuagint, where it's trying to communicate that a young woman is a virgin, they say, Alma who is an Alma, a virgin who is a virgin. But just one really just means young woman. But they took that text at its most literal, starting a trend that would haunt us for millennia, and they liked to connect those dots. They were like, look, 
Isaiah said it, and then it happened. So that's what the New Testament writers did. Look, Isaiah said she would be a virgin, and so she was a virgin, even though that's definitely not what Isaiah said. So why do I think that Mary might not be a virgin? Well, for me, there's one most glaring reason. It doesn't strike me as how God operates. For me, it seems more consistent with the obsession Christianity has with the hyper-spiritual and the fear that Christianity has towards the body. In fact, Christianity has like this really awful, ugly past of erasing and abstracting the material and the embodied. Christianity chafes at what is raw and messy and tends to reject anything that's bloody or earthly or having to do with the body, it becomes sinful and dirty. Think about all the times that Paul writes about the flesh. Except the incarnation literally means the enfleshed. Incarnation. Carne is kind of the core of that word. Carne is Latin for, for flesh or in certain cases, for meat. It's, it's the embodiment of God, the enfleshment of God, the, the God who becomes a meat-based human. This is the name of God, the incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us, not in some abstract, ethereal sense, not in the God floating in the ether sense, but the God who took on a meat suit to come hang out and eat dinner. The enfleshed, embodied God. That's who we see in the person of Jesus. God could have chosen to come and hang out as like a mysterious, mystical voice from the heavens. And God has done some of that too. But the centerpiece of our Christian history, the centerpiece of God's love for us, is taking on flesh. And we have this horrible history of ignoring that, of, of denying it, of pretending that that flesh wasn't really there. One of the theologians who has influenced me is Rosemary Radford Ruther. She's a feminist theologian, and, um, and she writes a lot about the earth and earth care. She says that all of this is actually a function of patriarchy and an explainable one. She talks about how the history of ideas associated men and masculinity with abstraction. Ideas, pure thought, logic, reason, these things that were clean and pure and completely abstracted from life. Think about the difference between Jesus, the embodied, and the Christ, Christ who is risen, Christ in the heavens. Or think about God in the clouds or the angels, all these things that are ethereal and far away, completely other than creation. Whereas the things of the world, the material reality, bodies and blood and friction and movement, these things were associated with women and femininity. And the earth, which was wild and untamable, and childbirth, which was dangerous and bloody and sometimes deadly. And these things were all terrifying to the systems of patriarchy that could not control them. So they were made to feel other, to feel vulgar, 
to feel sinful. And this is one of the reasons that sex, which is deeply embodied, gets vilified or just erased. With Jesus' story, it conveniently isn't necessary. We don't have to think about sex in the birth story of Jesus. How strange. When God has chosen to work through us in creation in this way for generations and generations, but when God enters the fray, it mystically disappears. But think about who our God is. Our God is collaborative. Our God is creative. Our God can speak things into existence, let there be light. But our God also molds humanity from the dirt and the clay and breathes life into us with a kiss. That is a different understanding of an aspect of God that we lose when we pretend it's all ether, an idea, that spirituality is something other than fleshliness, that spirituality is supposed to be divorced from our bodies. That's just not who God is. The incarnation is about the earth, about embodiment, about taking on this meat suit and embracing it. Sex is an act of creation from the beginning for God. And this is why it's so integral to the way that we co-create with God. We call it procreating. But we are participating in what God is doing when we join our flesh to another, when human beings are brought screaming and crying into this world from out of another human being's torn, bloody body. This is not abstract. It's not just an idea. It's very real and very raw. And that's important. God could have chosen to make it another way. But God worked it into the design and we treat it like a dirty footnote. So actually, it strikes me as strange that God would choose to come into this world without some sort of embodied fleshly experience. And we do get that in the birth. We tend not to talk about this part either. A few years ago at Zao, we had a series that I won't actually speak the full name of out loud because it has a curse in it, and we weren't able to use our Facebook ads in the same way at that time, but it was called Born In, I will let you fill in your imagination here, but we talked about the bodily experience of Jesus being born in manure, born into the barn, born with animals around, born covered in blood, in a, in a barn full of the smells of animals and sweat and tears, and that that is a miracle, that God comes into our embodied lives, is holy and beautiful and good, and it is our own shame and embarrassment and internalized misogyny that works in us to deny that and to pretend that it's all angels and trumpets and miraculous appearances. But Jesus had a human body, and Jesus' human body did pretty much all the things that your body does. Jesus maybe didn't menstruate, but other than that, Jesus did pretty much everything that all the rest of our bodies all do. Think of all the gross stuff your body does. God chose that. 
That's not a design flaw. That's a design choice. God chose that for creation. God chose that for you. God chose that for themselves in the incarnation, in the experience of Jesus. So why would God just opt out conveniently from the sex bit? It seems like a human construction to me. It seems like something that makes us uncomfortable. So we just skipped over it. Because if God has sex with Mary, that seems really creepy. I will totally concede that. But if Mary had sex with a human man, then like, is Jesus even God's son or is Jesus' dad some dude named Jared? And that really bums me out because how? With a queer lens and a feminist framework and our understanding of Ruth and Naomi and chosen family and how endlessly Jesus talks about, about the family of God, about sons and daughters and children of God by choice. Getting the full inheritance is about what you do and who you love, not what your DNA is. That love for one another is what makes us family to God. Are we not paying attention? Of course Jesus can be God's son, even if sperm came from Joseph or some rando named Jared. So to me, this reeks of our hang-ups, not the miracles of God. Now, having said all of that and probably bummed many of you out, Cameron included. I, when I was recently having a discussion about this at the Liberation Project's monthly roundtable, got some pushback that I really loved. And this, by the way, is the joy of church and community. There's no one way to interpret, and faithfulness is not about finding the right answer or even the right moment of revelation. It's about discourse. It's about discovery. It's about finding new truths from one another. Anyway, I was introducing my passion and my interpretation into this roundtable conversation. And my colleague Tyler pushed back. Tyler said that what he cherishes about the story of the virgin birth is that it is a holy example of believing women. And I loved that. He's right. This is a story about believing women. This is a story about Mary owning her own experience, saying, I know what has and has not happened to me, and no one else gets to tell me or make assumptions. I speak for myself and my body. And when she told Joseph, with a little divine intervention, he believed her because God urged him to believe her. When she told Elizabeth, Elizabeth believed her because she had her own miraculous experience that required people to believe her. So Mary saying, I have the final word about my body, and I'm telling you, I didn't have sex with anyone. Believing her is a holy act. I think that there is power in saying that we don't believe that the virgin, joy, that the virgin birth was an editorial choice made by men, writing Mary's virginity into a story for their own comfort, but that we think that Mary did say this, and the power is in believing her, that she did say this and go through this, and believing her, no matter how outlandish or strange it seems, is an act of holy faith in believing women. 
And if God chose to bring Jesus into the world without many, any men at all, well, then you know what? Prepare she the way of the Lord. I'm here for it. That sounds great. And it, it could be, it absolutely could be in keeping with who God is to say, hey, you know what? We've had a lot of men crowding the stage lately. I'm going to work just with the women on this one. Mary, you're up. I'm here for that. But I think that whether or not we believe in the virgin birth, we do have a choice about how much we're going to let it define Mary's story. Is that the true miracle here? That a woman didn't have sex? I think there's a lot more at play that gets erased or sidetracked when we take our obsession with sex and paper over it by pretending that it never happens. Or even if, in believing Mary, we let that be her soul-defining characteristic. The virgin mother is cool, but she's got a lot else going on. What else does Mary have to offer? We take away Mary's power when we reduce her to a girl who didn't have sex, literally defining her by what she hasn't done rather than what she has done and who she is. What if the prophecy in Isaiah as it was written in the original Hebrew about a young woman, is true? What if that's the part that God really wants to bring our attention to? That Mary was a young woman. That it's not really about her virginity, but that her experience as a young woman makes that birth miraculous. I think we like miracles to be standalones, but birth is an absolute miracle. And for a young woman in her context, she had a lot stacked against her. Young women were often unheard. Young women were, as we've established, treated like property, not like prophets. She was asked to do something difficult, and she had to be incredibly brave to do so. Young women are often powerful and brave in ways that we consistently underestimate that we tell women to believe less in themselves, that we treat women as less than, and yet, over and over again, women of all stripes prove their power and dignity and beauty and bravery and wisdom. And Mary has a lot of powerful women in her lineage. She is in the ancestry of these women we've talked about, and they have prepared the way for her, just as she is preparing the way for Jesus. What if that is the central miracle? What if Mary, the young woman, is the miracle in herself? And God looked at her and said, you are a miracle. And I want to, to move through you. I want to bring more. I want to let each victory aid the next one to win. I want to build a, your miraculous self by bringing more miracles through you because of who you are. Birth is a wild miracle for a young woman like Mary to take on, especially being unwed. And it's, again, a very embodied miracle. It's not a clean, abstract, self-contained miracle where, poof, there's more food on the table or, you know, there's Jesus who's just mysteriously out of the tomb. Birth is something we can actually conceptualize. And it's hard and there's labor and pain involved, and we 
are back then to talking about the blood and the dirt and what it means to bring life into this world from inside another body, to break Mary's body open to bring Jesus into the world. This is a miracle. And finally, the miracle of solidarity between Mary and Elizabeth. The power of women connecting to one another is notable. And the idea that the two of them, these co-conspirators in what God is doing, are bringing both John and Jesus into the world. And that the, the conversations recorded in the Bible are not there for the men, but for one another. That when they speak to one another, they see each other, they recognize each other's miracles, and in so doing, they are no longer alone. They are magnificent. It turns them into prophets. These two women, one young, one old, gaining prophetic vision and understanding simply through talking to one another, through their solidarity. And once they are together, a new revelation. This Messiah, this Jesus, will be different. When Mary sings her prophetic revelation, the Magnificat, she sings about God. God has shown strength. God has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations. God has cast the mighty down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. She can see it. She can feel it in her being. It is coming into being in her own body. This life of Jesus, this incarnate God with us is coming into the world. And Mary is declaring what God has already done. And it's wild because she is in a position where the mighty are still firmly on their thrones and she's still pretty crushed underfoot. And yet she says it with such certainty. She says it in the past tense. God has done these things in me, in us. Whatever's going on now, I see it, I understand it, and I will preach it. Mary is the lowly that is lifted up because she's not just a young woman. She's also unwed. She's from a small rural town. She has no power, and she's living under the occupation of Rome. And God chose her. I'm sure there were plenty of virgins who were wealthier or more highly respected or came from cities or seats of power. But God's criteria was not actually about sexuality. It was about who Mary was and how her experiences shaped her into being who she became. Not only was she young and unwed and oppressed, but she was bold. God came to her and said, hey, here's the thing. I'm pitching this to you. And she was like, yes, I'm in. She had some questions first, you know. She was like, how? But she was in. And that was a choice that Mary made. Mary was bold and made choices. She was active in her own story, just like Rahab. Mary was loving. She took on enormous risk to protect Jesus, to love Joseph even though he was experiencing doubt. And she is portrayed consistently through her story as a loving person, just like Ruth who loved. And Mary was wise. She didn't try and do this alone, and she didn't try just leaning on Joseph. She knew of Elizabeth, 
also going through a miraculous experience. And so she felined for Elizabeth's place. She knew how to seek out support, and that is wise, just as Elizabeth is wise, and poured out her knowledge and wisdom to support Mary through her early pregnancy. God chose Mary because of who she was, and she was prophetic enough to see that. Not only did she say some, uh, did that say something about who she was, she was blessed, she was lifted up, but she understood that it said something about who God was, that God chose her. She knew that that was a reflection on God's character, that casting down the mighty from their thrones and lifting up those who were oppressed wasn't just a fluke or an accident. Again, it was part of the design that God was making a choice to use her because she did have power, not in the ways of the world, but in the ways of the spirit, in the ways of the earth. She had a power that she offered to the rest of us as one of our ancestors, preparing the way for Jesus who would change everything. Her song finishes, God has come to the aid of Israel, remembering God's mercy. And just as God promised to our ancestors, to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants forever. And I like to think of listing all of those descendants, including the names Ruth, Rahab, Elizabeth, and Mary. God makes choices about how to move in and through this world. And the things that seem miraculous to us may be and may be miraculous. But it is often the things that we write off as regular that are the true miracles of God that show the most about who God is and how God moves in the world and what God wants for us. To be more, not less, in our flesh. To be deeply rooted and connected to one another to trust and believe young women, to see power where God has instilled power, not where the world has entrusted its power. Mary was magnificent, and God saw all the contours of that and chose Mary with pride and excitement. And Mary was amazing enough to say, yes, I'm in. May we all have the wisdom of our ancestor Mary. Will you pray with me? God of this earth and all the cosmos, we thank you for being a God willing to be embodied. We thank you for being a God who chooses young women. We thank you for being a God of ordinary miracles. God, may we have hearts to receive, ears to hear, eyes to see what you have laid before us. God, train us not to see as the world does, but perhaps as the earth does, your creation who knows you in every fiber of its being. God, may we understand the wisdom, of the blood and dirt of our flesh. May we not deny it, but see you in every pore. God, you are good, and you have made our bodies good. We thank you for the miracle of Mary's body, the miracle of her spirit, 
of her passion, of her prophetic voice. We pray that we would learn to be more like her. Amen.